Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, let me say a special word of welcome to the many visitors we have uh, to our campus uh, for this conference on the public interest in the making of American public policy from 1965 to uh, 2005. You're very uh, welcome here, and we're pleased that you made the effort to come. Uh, ideas can have consequences. It depends on whether you can get your ideas before the public, or at least that part of the public that is paying attention and uh, is playing a role in the formation of public policy in our democratic republic. Uh, getting your ideas into the discussion means finding a place to publish them, usually. Uh, publish can be in the written word, of course, or uh, in the spoken word, via radio and television and so forth. But it's hard to think in American history of a publication of any type that managed to uh, facilitate consequences for ideas in the way that the Journal of the Public Interest uh, did. And we are gathered together for these next two days uh, to look at, to examine the impact of the ideas published in the public interest on American public policy. The journal was founded in 1965 by Irving Kristol and uh, Daniel Bell, uh, with Nathan Glazer replacing uh, Dr. Bell as co-editor in uh, 1976. The journal published some of the most uh, important uh, conservative reform ideas to come uh, before the public uh, in the period, especially of the 1970s and into the uh, Reagan years among the luminaries whose important work was published uh, in the journal were James Q. Wilson, uh, Charles Krauthammer, Glenn Lowry, Daniel uh, Moynihan, Erwin Stelzer, who is uh, here uh, with us, uh, many, many uh, more. So we're delighted to have the opportunity to review the contributions of the public interest and to bring together uh, a distinguished group of scholars uh, and public uh, uh, policy folks uh, who themselves in some cases, uh, as in Dr. Stelzer's case, uh, contributed to the public interest uh, or were participants, as Adam Wolfson, uh, who's here on our panel, was in the publication of the uh, uh, journal itself, uh, or whose own thought was uh, shaped in significant measure by the public interest and the ideas uh, published in it. Before uh, introducing our opening uh, speaker, I want to say a very special word of thank you uh, to those who joined me in putting together this conference, the little conference uh, committee. Uh, I'd like to thank my associate director, Brad Wilson, associate director of the James Madison uh, program, uh, Bill Crystal, uh, Ken Kirsch, who is an assistant professor of politics with us here and who's on uh, the panel, uh, Adam Wolfson, uh, and Eric Cohen. Uh, they were all instrumental in making uh, this conference happen, and I'm extremely grateful to them. Well, let us begin. Our opening uh, remarks on the constitutional idea are by James Caesar, who is professor of political science at the university, professor of politics at the University of uh, Virginia. Uh, Professor Caesar is one of our nation's most uh, distinguished scholars of political theory and American politics. I'm delighted to say he has lectured with us at Princeton on many occasions, including as the inaugural Herbert W. Uh, Vaughan uh, lecturer on American constitutionalism. Uh, he is a frequent contributor not only to the most distinguished academic journals uh, in politics, uh, but also uh, in more popular uh, forums. Uh, he earned his PhD at uh, Harvard University, and I ask you to join me in welcoming Professor Caesar back to Princeton, Professor James Caesar. Thank you, Robbie. Well, uh, two score and one year ago, uh, our fathers here today brought forth a, a new kind of social science journal 
under the name of the public interest. So it's altogether fitting, I think, that we should be here today to, uh, to commemorate that contribution. The journal voluntarily closed the doors on its humble one-room office last year after 40 years. That is to say, if we want to anthropomorphize it, in the very prime of uh, middle age. In doing so, it remained faithful to an original inspiration, which was articulated in the uh, opening introductory essay by Daniel Bell and Irving Kristol. They were responding to a disdainful dismissal of the whole project uh, of the public interest that was given by an unnamed man of letters who characterized it as a middle-aged magazine for middle-aged readers. Bell and Crystal uh, elected not to reject, but rather to embrace wholeheartedly this description, going on to shock the conscience by defending what no person in the 1960s ever dared to defend middle age. <laughs> Here are their words. Young people tend to be enchanted by glittering generalities. Older people are inclined to remember rather than think. Middle-aged people, seasoned by life but still open to the future, do seem to us to be the best of all. Their expressed wish to remain always open to the future uh, contrasts with the somber words on which the journal uh, ended last year. In a review of two books on population decline in many advanced societies, the author wondered why, and I quote, so many people are choosing to live for themselves and for today with so little thought for the future. Well, in stark violation of all self-imposed rhetorical norms, I can't avoid um, taking a couple minutes out of personal reflection on the public interest because uh, its years of existence, uh, in its years of existence, I see virtually the whole of my academic uh, career flitting before my eyes. The public interest appeared just about when I uh, started as an undergraduate. It was the first journal, other than Playboy, that I can recall studying with great attention to detail. <laughs> Um, even though the annual subscription rate at the time, I think it was 950, was more than I could afford. I recall that those were the days when uh, Aaron Waldowski, who wrote a famous uh, article, early article in the public interest on budgeting, could uh, almost shock his readers by telling them to expect that budget deficits could be misestimated by as much as a margin of five to ten billion dollars, which today qualifies hardly as a rounding error. Well, the impression that uh, these uh, magazine made on me uh, led me, of course, to go to Harvard and uh, some of the founders and uh, uh, writers of the journal became my teachers. James Q. Wilson was my um, thesis advisor. I think he's probably the most prolific of all public interest writers. I think he's still writing for it probably this, this week. <laughs> um, Nathan Glazer, I took courses with Nathan Glazer. It was a, it was a great honor to, 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 to study with them. I wrote for the public interest myself. Now I find even some of my students wrote, uh, wrote for it. So it uh, sort of spans the whole uh, time of my career. And it was also preparing for this session something of a, uh, a little bit of a nostalgic experience, rereading um, the public interest, some of the editions in the library last week. Um, I couldn't get through them all, but I uh, followed the expedience that if you just skip the articles on suburbia, you can make pretty rapid progress. <laughs> So uh, it was nice to feel uh, the grain of the paper in, in your hands again and to admire uh, 
um, the very middle-aged tone of the graphics, um, which never veered any further than to change the uh, color of the cover, varying over the 40 years from muddy brown maroon to white to beige and then back to muddy brown, uh, muddy brown uh, maroon, just like a stage, stayed middle-aged gentleman who keeps the same suit but changes the tie every now and then. On this score, I only uh, detected one midlife crisis um, when the journal in 1995 strayed a bit and in one number uh, went pretty in pink, which was the only pink cover of the 40-year uh, the existence. It's also interesting in looking at the library, called the fact that it went back before the, uh, the era of uh, inexpensive photocopying. And that you could tell by the fact that the uh, students um, would often excise or cut out articles altogether. Um, if it was a popular article, it was cut out. You couldn't have a chance to read it. One notable article cut out was James Q. Wilson's On the Crime Problem. <laughs> there were a few treasures, too, in, in going through, just little nuggets that uh, it picked out. Um, for example, a little article by Henry Fairley, um, he wrote as follows, he says, um, he's speaking here of Bill Moyers, he says, as the uh, height, at the height of the city riots in 1967, Bill Moyers could publicly call for Robert, Robert McNamara to be made czar in charge of clearing the slums and ghettos. Bill Moyers is still repaying in his guilt for such statements. <laughs> well, middle-aged or, or, or not, the journal, 40 years for a journal is still a long time. It comprises about a fifth of the duration of the American Commonwealth. And what a full 40 years this was, spanning three generations, with the generation being uh, conceived by its collective consciousness as forged by the common experience of uh, all members seeing the same set of events. The public interest was born in the mid-60s, which, uh, if the normal gesti gesticulation period is normal, means that it was probably conceived a few years before. I offer as a, a conjecture, um, and only a conjecture, that it may have been con conceptualized in the intellectual mood of the end of ideology, in a reasonable hope that the old and rigid thought structures of much of the intellectual class might uh, be laid to tender rest and that American intellectuals might be able to put aside childish things, such as communism, socialism, and begin to think of our political problems on a practical basis, aided by a better social science that looked fairly and impartially at the world, not through rose-tinted lenses, and that considered hard and discernible facts of social reality, dealing with such important matters as housing, transportation, health care, crime, and schools. But in fact, no sooner did the first number of the public interest appear than this calm and reasonable expectation, if indeed uh, it was held by its editors, ran headlong into a raging tempest that we refer to today in a unitary term as the 60s, but which in fact was a confluence of a, a few different systems that merged and interacted with one another to form the perfect political storm. There was the emergence on a massive scale of the old struggle for justice in the shape of the civil rights movement and then the uh, riots in the ghettos. There was a reprise in a on a huge scale 
of the progressive-minded program of government-led social reform, known as the Great Society, which laid claim to be the offspring of rational social science. There was the Vietnam War, which would eventually end in failure in mutual recrimination among Americans and in a doubting and denial of anything like the possibility of a noble American destiny or a justifiable or proud sense of American exceptionalism. Anti-Americanism, an old European disease, was imported into our own midst and became a staple of a large part of our intellectual class. And finally, guiding in some measure the whole course of events was the emergence of a strong and unexpected intruder, a new left that challenged not only the prevailing progressive left, but the core and foundation of the American way of life and Western way of life itself. Now, if the most basic and important sense of the constitutional idea, which is our subject, is how a people constitutes itself, how it understands its own underpinning and its own direction, then here clearly was the recurrence of a conflict on the deepest constitutional level. But however one wishes to characterize this challenge, it certainly did not square with the underlying condition envisioned by the notion of the end of ideology. The new left might not have been a new ideology, strictly speaking, because it denied the very notion of a true science of ideas, which ideology, ideology had always staked as its, as its claim. But neither was the new left anything just purely emotional, for its notions lay in deeper sources of political theory of the previous century. I get a little bit ahead of myself in saying that it was the incorporation of the analysis of this challenge into social science that constituted the real notion of social science of the public interest. It occurred at the end of the first year in one of the first full articles that Irving Kristol wrote in which he stated that the most important problem facing America was a crisis in values. And he spoke of a new polarization opening within America between old certainties and new sophistication. And if we've been required uh, to present our own title beyond the generic, the constitutional idea, this, old certainties and new sophistication, would, would have been the one I've chosen. But let me continue quickly with the other two generations. The public interest continued to the generation of 1989, which saw the collapse of European communism, and with it, the definitive death knell of a certain self-proclaimed rationalist idea that held that central government control and planning was the best approach to social policy and the surest path to progress. And the journal also survived through 9-11. That's the third generation, the one that inaugurated among Americans another view reshaping their understanding of the world, bringing to the forefront matters of the basis of civilizations and the place in our society and in all societies of philosophy, law, and religion. The simple point to make then is that the public interest never cut itself off from the great background questions that affect modern consciousness. It did not do so because these issues and questions often proved to be the main factors affecting the status of the public interest itself. I know that there are those who like to define neoconservatism, it is after all just a word, as a, a neoconservative as, some, as a liberal being mugged by reality, with reality being the constraining difficulties of establishing workable social policies. To my way of thinking, however, this is a most cramped and crabbed conception of 
what the project of the public interest was all about. For in addition to the study of social policy as usual, crime, health, and the like, the public interest opened itself very, very early to the study of and encounter with the great theoretical questions and the moral issues that had forced themselves uh, on America and the West. If there was a mugging by reality, it was a reality that showed the important issues of public policy often to be theoretical ones. These issues are the unavoidable phenomena of social life. Neoconservatism therefore meant to me, and it still means to me, and I also think it meant this to its originators, it referred mostly to a new kind of social science for a new world, a social science that made every effort to grapple with the underlying questions that made up the value crisis that emerged in the 60s. Neoconservatism seeks to grapple with these issues in a scientific or rational way, as far as and by whatever means that this is possible. It is the rational in inquiry into what kinds of constituting or constitutional ideas a society or nation needs to survive. It is still strictly social science because the controlling perspective of this counter with theoretical ideas is not how the ideas stack up aesthetically or ontologically, but how they play in promoting or detracting from the realization of the public good. To go to the issues raised in that first neoconservative article in 1965, there were two main questions posed. Whether a dynamic and vital society can exist without certainties. The new sophistication, as Irving Crystal used the term, affirmed um, that uh, no such certainties were needed, that is, uh, certainties of ideas. The second question was, if the uh, society needed such certainties, what was their nature and character? What were the sustaining ideas or sustaining certainties of a, of a nation such as the United States? What is their source and what is their evidence? If I had to put these uh, issues into uh, more contemporary terms, terms that I now prefer, the great question of the, uh, that was posed was the question of whether societies can live with foundations or not. With the new sophistication, as referred to by Irving Kristol, being equated with political non-foundationalism, the uh, concept or idea that a modern society needs no firm certainties, indeed it's best with, lives without such firm certainties if it is to survive. Neoconservative thought in its quest to grapple with these questions has turned a critical light on both conservatism and on liberalism. And so one raises the question, what about the term neoconservatism itself? Certainly, I would not have uh, chosen it uh, if, if I had been asked. It was actually chosen by a socialist, I think Michael Harrington, so uh, what can you expect? But still, I think it's not misleading in, in, in two respects. First, neoconservatism is more conservative than, than liberal in that it rejects the new sophistication or idealistic non-foundationalism. Second, however, it's also not conservative. For while it sought political certainties and seeks political certainties, it has not sought them where the old conservative had looked for them. It has reconstructed old conservatism, and at least as some would have it, has made it into a more viable body of political thought for today. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Caesar. Uh, we're now privileged to have uh, some comments 
uh, from three distinguished uh, panelists. I will introduce all three uh, and then recognize uh, Bill Crystal uh, to speak first. Uh, Bill Crystal is editor of the Weekly Standard and chairman and co-founder of the Project for the New American Century. Uh, Mr. Crystal served as chief of staff to Vice President Dan Quayle during the administration of George H.W. Bush uh, and as chief of staff to uh, Secretary of Education William Bennett during the Reagan years. Before coming to Washington, he uh, served as an assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania and at Harvard's uh, Kennedy School of Government. Uh, he regularly appears on uh, Fox News. Fox News Sunday and on the Fox News Channel, and he earned his PhD degree from Harvard University. Adam Wolfson uh, served on the editorial staff of the Public Interest and also on the editorial staff of Commentary uh, Magazine. Uh, Adam is currently a visiting assistant professor in uh, Claremont McKenna College's Washington, D.C. program. He has also uh, served as a consultant to the President's Council on Bioethics, and he received his PhD from the University of Chicago. And Roger Scruton uh, is one of the world's most eminent philosophers, and we're just honored and delighted to have him with us this year at Princeton as a visiting professor of philosophy. Uh, he is at the same time the ISI, that is Intercollegiate Studies Institute, uh, visiting fellow in the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. He's been a fellow of Peterhouse Cambridge and director of studies at Christ College, Cambridge. He was also a professor at Birkbeck College in London, uh, Birkbeck College London and uh, at Boston University. Uh, he is currently research professor at the Institute for Psychological Sciences in Washington, D.C., and he is a graduate of Cambridge uh, University. So we'll begin with Bill Crystal. Well, thank you, uh, Robbie. It's, it's, it really is an honor to be on this distinguished panel. This is a slightly more distinguished panel than the one I'm usually on on Sundays, I've got to say. <laughs> Don't, don't, don't tell that to Juan Williams or Fred Hume. But, um, and I'll be brief because I want to hear from Adam, who really uh, obviously was managing editor and the editor of the magazine for the last 10 years and put out some of the best issues, actually, of the public interest. And from, and from Roger, uh, I'm really not. I only wrote for the public interest, I think, twice, two book reviews, one of George Will's Soulcraft, uh, Statecraft, and one of Aaron Woldowski's book, actually, on policy analysis when I was at Penn in the early 80s. So I really am not qualified to be on this panel. I'm not a real academic, and I didn't run the magazine the way Adam did, but I guess I'm here for reasons of nepotism, which, uh, <laughs> which is okay, because the public interest was always pro-nepotism, I would say, <laughs> in a moderate way, you know, and, and being a neoconservative magazine, it wasn't you know, sort of a uh, modern form of nepotism or something. Um, I, uh, I, I will tell my father who, that Jim Caesar compared the public interest to Playboy, which will be very, he'll be very gratified by. <laughs> it actually reminds me, I, I, my own, I don't really remember, I mean, I was, I guess, 11 years old or something when the public interest was founded, 12, but I do vaguely remember Dan Bell and my father sitting around our, in the living room of our apartment at 90 Riverside Drive in, in New York talking about the magazine, and then at some point, and I was interested in this, you know, as a kid, they got a mock-up of what the cover would look like, and it didn't change, as Jim suggested, really, I don't think, for the 40 years of its existence. But as a 12-year-old boy, I was extremely amused by the cover um, because I thought it, lo it looked like the pubic interest. Uh, and I kept suggesting over the years that someone should found such a magazine. I think it would have, it would have sold a little better. Uh, instead, there were all these knockoffs, you know, the national interest, the American interest, but somehow never, I guess the pubic interest became unnecessary given the state of play, the state of American society today. Um, the, uh, so I'll, I'll tell them about the Playboy comparison. That it's what it reminded me of, the, of my uh, teenage or pre-teenage, I guess, amusement about the, the, the title. 
I also want to say that I checked into the uh, I was very thrilled that it's great to be here with so many friends, obviously, and distinguished contributors to the magazine and contributors to the Weekly Standard, I would also add. But uh, I was really thrilled to check in a couple of hours ago at the Palmer House, the, the guest house, and uh, there was a sort of attractive woman, I guess about my age, right in front of me, and I, we kind of came in together, and I let her go first, and I didn't really recognize her, but then uh, the woman at the desk was extremely thrilled to check her in, and uh, it was Meryl Streep. Um, uh, who's here, right, for the public interest conference, you know? She was a... <laughs> I, I don't... If, if, I, if, I remember, if I remember her political views well, I don't think it... It probably didn't have as big an influence on Meryl Streep as it did on Jim Caesar, but... Uh, I actually, she was still standing there when I checked in, and I, I can't tell if she just had a generalized disdain for anyone else, basically, like a, most Hollywood actresses, or I flatter myself that she might have actually recognized my name and had real focused disdain for her. <laughs> she certainly had disdain for me. I couldn't quite tell if I, I'm... I'm choosing the flattering version of this and thinking that she knew who I was. I will make a, a very briefly actually comment on two points that Jim made. I hadn't really... It was... I believe it's true that the public interest was founded in the wake of Dan Bell's End of Ideology, book, which I guess was a collection of essays with a title essay, The End of Ideology, which I think came out, what, like 62, something like that, and certainly was in the air when the public interest was conceived in 64 and, and 65. Um, I think it's safe to say that the public interest, almost from the beginning, though, transcended, the end, transcended both ideology and the end of ideology. I mean, if you, I guess one capsule just summary or, or definition of neoconservatism would be that it, it understands that the end of ideology is impossible in this, if that implies somehow, uh, you know, quote, rational uh, society or the, you know, sort of a, um, a society in which issues of values uh, aren't fundamental or, or a society in which politics is no longer the realm of opinion or mores, uh, that certainly was something that almost from the beginning the public interest understood was impossible. On the other hand, the public interest always tried to not simply oppose the end of ideology with ideology. And I think you in a way, many, many, many articles in the public interest over its 40 years showed how one can take ideas seriously, how one can take opinions seriously, how one can debate um, uh, issues of uh, mores and manners and morals seriously without being simply um, ideological. So the, uh, I think neoconservatism at its best, the public interest certainly stood in some way for the proposition that uh, there is a, there's an alternative to both ideology and the end of ideology. Um, second point, the, uh, I was very struck that Jim made a comment that I've actually almost heard very few other people make uh, that I've often thought, which is my father famously uh, quipped that a neoconservative was a liberal who had been bugged by reality. This was, I guess, after Michael Harrington invented the term and my father decided, and you know, people spent about a year or two denying they were really conservatives. That was such a horrible thing to be in the early 70s, especially in New York. Um, and then my father decided, well, what the heck, I'll just accept the term. It, it is true. He really was no longer um, much of a liberal. He, he describes himself, I think, in the, in the essay in the last issue as having been a skeptical liberal when he founded the magazine and he accepted the term neoconservative by, I think, 73 or 74. But I always thought there was something... I would say it was rhetorically, it was a very witty line, and probably rhetorically an intelligent line that a neoconservative was a liberal who was mugged by reality because it allowed a lot of liberals to move over towards neoconservatism in a pretty easy and painless way. I, I've always thought it understated, uh, in a way, the intellectual uh, achievement of neoconservatism in those years, which really involved a rethinking of liberalism, a rethinking of constitutionalism, a rediscovery of the founding, uh, among other things, 
um, which was beyond a mere kind of being a liberal and then, gee, reality obtrudes or assaults one and one rethinks some things. Or let's say that the being woke by reality led to a rethinking. It wasn't simply a reaction to reality. Or, and reality, of course, doesn't, doesn't in any simple way tell you what to think about reality once you've been mugged by it. Um, Mike Scully, who I hadn't thought of this in a while until Jim mentioned the phrase, Mike Scully, who was managing editor of the public interest, I guess, what, in the early 80s, mid-80s, um, and died very young in, in the early 90s, um, had a fantastic line in a piece he wrote somewhere, I've never actually been able to track this down, in the very beginning of the 80s when he was writing about the neoliberals, remember there were these Atari Democrats, neoliberals at the time, and uh, who sort of understood the problems with great society liberalism, but didn't want to become, God forbid, uh, conservatives of any kind, including neoconservatives. And Mike said, and I think he wrote this somewhere, but maybe he just said it, and I remember it. He said that neoliberals were liberals who had been mugged by reality and refused to press charges. <laughs> Which is an extremely, I mean, it's really a deep point, actually. I believe there is a lot of that around, I would say, today, in, in my opinion, and in all kinds of uh, walks of life. And I think what was impressive about the public interest was not just uh, that a lot of people were mugged in different ways and at different times by reality, but they pressed charges and, and did so politically. I mean, they understood that in, in that public policy debates are political debates, and they weren't scared, many of them, of being somewhat uh, polemical at times, but also, more importantly, intellectually. And pressing charges really means they're rethinking uh, some of the dogmas of modern liberalism and of modern conservatism in a way that I do think led to genuinely fresh uh, fresh thinking and uh, fresh empirical work, but also fresh, uh, fresh thinking. So I, I, uh, there was more than being mugged by reality, but that was a good, a good starting point. Um, but I, I guess I'm just struck thinking about that, the, the degree to which the public interest, and, and Jim is right about this, very quickly from the beginning went beyond um, a kind of end of ideology professionalization of reform. I think Pat Moynihan's piece, Professionalization of Reform, is, in, is that in the first issue? or? Yeah, I think it is. And, but in the same issue, Marty Diamond has a piece on liberals, conservatives, and the Constitution, which in a sense explains why uh, the constitutional idea and the debates about constitutionalism will prevent us from having a, um, a true, so to speak, professionalization of reform, uh, you know, happy rule by end of ideology, uh, um, sort of social science professionals. So from the beginning, the, the public interest was um, uh, a sort of a deeper sense, I think, of what was problematic about both ideology and end of ideology. Than, than people perhaps sometimes think. Thank you, Bill. Adam Wolfson. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, Playboy, the pubic interest in Meryl Streep. I, this is going to be a very hard act to follow. Uh, let me just uh, begin actually by thanking uh, Robbie George and the Madison Center for really putting on this, this conference. I'd, I'd actually like to thank him on behalf of all the people that went through the doors of the PI over the years because uh, I know a lot of work went into this, and, and so you have uh, our gratitude on behalf of all of us. Uh, Jim, Jim Caesar's uh, remarks were, were very interesting, and he points us towards the origins of the journal, and so I, I'll, uh, I, I think I'll just address myself to that. And unlike him, I, I didn't actually live through the beginning, and so I, I look back on it as someone who read those early issues when I got to the public interest uh, in 1994. 
the, the pink issue occurred under my reign, but I wasn't responsible for it. So, and I think, uh, so my perspective might be a little bit uh, different, although I think, by and large, I, I agree with uh, Jim's comments about the origins of the PI and, and, and the, the kind of approach it brought to social science and the, and the meaning of the magazine. I think uh, what, I'm, what I'm struck by when I look back on it, and again, when it, we, I, think, I think Nathan Glazer is, is here already, or maybe he'll be here tomorrow, so he'll, he'll be able to talk more about the origins for us. Uh, but, but I'm struck by the fact that if you read those early issues, uh, right there, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's right, it's founded in 1965, really just as the Great Society is getting underway, or even really before. The great, or before we know anything about the consequences of the Great Society. And in, and in that sense, the, the journal is really remarkably, uh, remarkably prescient uh, in that, in a sense, it was, it was founded uh, at around the, time, at the same time as the Great Society, but as a critique of the Great Society before it had even gotten underway. So, so while, while I think, right, there's something about the Right, something in the air about the end of ideology and, and so on. I, I, my own sense is that uh, Irving Kristol and Dan Bell and, and perhaps Nathan Glazer as, as well were thinking pretty deeply uh, about some sort of larger ideas uh, that were that were afloat and, and going around. Uh, I mean, usually when people think of the public interest, I think. Uh, I, I don't know whether this is, is good or bad, but I think generally speaking, the, the, the thought is that this was really a, a social policy magazine. And, and I think there's certainly some truth to that, uh, and, and, the, and this is sort of the, what, what Jim was talking about. But as Bill mentioned, it's, right, it's, it's always important to remember that, right, that Marty Diamond, one of Leo Strauss's students, right, uh, right appear, appears in that first issue, which is really quite a remarkable fact before probably anyone had really heard of Strauss. I mean, today, everyone, Leo Strauss is on, on the lips of everybody, but, but this is 1965, right, the founding of a social policy magazine, and the very first issue, one, is, is a very theoretical, deeply thoughtful article by a student of Strauss on the, on the constitutional idea. So, so let me talk a little bit, though, about what the magazine is really known for, or, or uh, more, more in, in a popular sense, right? Urban policy and social policy, uh, welfare policy, and, and so on. And, and actually, in, in the next panel, we're going to be hearing more about that. I think, right, if, if, one, th if one thinks about the public interest in social policy, uh, I think the magazine did really bring a unique approach to social policy. And then the question is, well, what, what was that unique approach? And uh, I'll just give my own, my own sense of it uh, as, as a reader and, and, a, and an editor for, for about 10 years. And I, I think it didn't, it didn't mean in any way uh, an agenda or a party platform uh, or even a set of policy proposals. I don't think anyone really thinks of the magazine in that sense, although, although surely we, we, uh, we put forth our, our, our share of, of recommendations. And I think that the idea of the, pub, the public interest approach also was not in any way uh, ideological. There, there, wasn't a, there wasn't a certain 
public interest ideology or philosophy per se. And, and I think this is clear if one just kind of runs down the various issues and look and looks at who, who wrote on them, right? W welfare policy, right? If, if anything, the magazine is associated with welfare policy. And well, who, who wrote for the magazine on welfare policy, right? Daniel Patrick Moynihan, sort of a, right, a kind of New Deal liberal, uh, uh, right? The, the, right? The, the well-known libertarian Charles Murray, uh, and right, the distinctive approach of someone like Larry Mead, who we'll, we'll hear from later today, or, or Nathan Glazer for that matter. None of these uh, people have much in common in any sort of philosophic or ideological way, yet they all, uh, they all found reason to, pub to, to, to publish their ideas in the public interest, and the public interest found reason to publish them. And I think the same could be said on any number of social policy issues, social security, urban policy, education. You would find the same really sort of broad uh, ideological a broad number of people from different ideological approaches writing for the magazine. So, so what do we mean by the, the public interest approach? And I think, I think this was really, I'm, I'm just uh, offering commentary, I think, at this point, an elaboration on what, on what Bill and, and, and Jim have already uh, really put so well. Uh, so I, I think, uh, in my mind, I think, the approach to social science and social policy of the magazine, I, I, I think, uh, or, or, I, or I'm, I like to, to, to flatter the, myself and the public, public interest to think that, right, it would have in some sense met the approval or not been unfamiliar to someone like Aristotle or, or, or Tocqueville. Uh, and in this sense, it was, it was non-utopian, uh, but on the other hand, not opposed to, to social policy or government intervention. And, and so more specifically, and in very general terms, however, I think what the approach, what, what was unique, unique about the approach throughout its, its 40 years was that it always, it always took, right, it always took human nature very, right, there was always something, human nature was always an element in the thinking about social policy at the public interest. So in, of, of, in all the writers writing on social policy, there was an effort to make social policy fit Americans act as they actually live their lives. So it, didn't, it, it never became merely a public policy journal because it always had this sort of larger philosophic question in mind. And then I think the, the second thing I think which, is, which was unique to it, and, and this is something that, that Bill has also uh, hit on, was the, right, the, the social science approach or its approach to pu public policy, right, it never lost sight of what, what the name of the magazine tells us, the public interest or the public good. And I think those two things, if you think about social policy in the post-1965 era, was really quite unique in that, in that certainly on the left and in certain ways on the right as well, those two elements of social policy uh, had, had, been, had been lost or forgotten. Professor Scruton? Oh. Thank you uh, for inviting me, uh, Robbie, and um, I'm really a voice from outside because I'm not part of the uh, American public debate, uh, but um, I do have some knowledge of the public interest. First, because I, I was once invited to write for it, and this was in the 80s, uh, on uh, the question of public space. 
I got this letter out of the blue from somebody, I think it was from Nathan Glazer, uh, who'd re read a book I'd written on architecture and said, we'd like you to contribute to a debate about the nature of public space. And I was quite amazed that there should be a journal that was willing to, conf uh, to contemplate such a question. For me, it was a you know, very important part of uh, the philosophy of architecture that one should think about the difference between a public space and a private space but that there should be a journal prepared to discuss this um, for the general pub reading public seemed to me nothing short of a miracle. I wrote the article, greatly enjoyed it. I realized while writing it that I could never have published such a thing in any English journal except for one, and that was the journal that I myself edited, <laughs> um, <laughs> which was uh, called the Salisbury Review. I, I had started this journal just a few years before. I'd been asked to edit it, but is to say, by a little group of um, geriatrics called the Salisbury Group, uh, who had founded themselves in memory of the great Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, whose greatness consists in the fact that nobody now knows anything about him, <laughs> uh, and um, obviously was de dedicated to promoting that kind of conservative idea, you know, the idea of conducting politics in such a way as to be invisible. <laughs> and um, I, I was conducting the, my journal in just such a way, I, I thought, <laughs> certainly nobody subscribed to it, but on the, alas, the left-wing press got hold of an issue, and of course it then became a public scandal of the highest order, uh, uh, that, um, uh, which seriously damaged my career. But that again led me to think, you know, how different it is in America that a, a serious journal like this, which challenges some orthodoxies, lives with other orthodoxies, uh, but generally opens the uh, arena of debate, uh, that it should have such a following. It was just impossible at that time in Europe. Uh, and now, uh, Professor Caesar uh, made some very interesting remarks about this, saying that um, this journal and neoconservatism, which is now the movement associated, I suppose, with it, uh, was looking for a new social science designed to deal with the value crisis, the crisis of, um, in Western values that had uh, burst on us, I suppose, in the, in the 60s. Uh, well, the 60s for us in England was the time when social science burst on us, and it was the crisis in values. Uh, at the very moment when Daniel Bell's End of Ideology was being published, ideology was beginning in our universities, and it had the name of social science. Uh, it's a, and it is a remarkable fact that European social science has been certainly not scientific and has taken the word social to be just a, a shorthand for socialism and uh, has been, in fact, a way in which socialist propaganda has been inflicted upon us at times when it was palpably obvious to everybody except those who studied social science that socialism was a disaster. So um, there has been... Uh, for us, uh, no room in the social sciences for the kind of thinking that uh, Professor Caesar um, attributes to the, this journal. And I think that um, what one should recognize is the, not just the contribution of the editors, uh, Irving Crystal and uh, Nathan Glazer and uh, Daniel Bell and others, but also that behind them was this hugely civilized uh, and um, amazing penetrating intellect of Gertrude Himmelfarb, uh, a, a historian of a kind that, uh, you know, again, we have in, in, in Europe, but only uh, in, hidden away in places, chased out of the academic uh, establishment, 
and driven to surviving by journalism. Gertrude Himmelfab here enjoys the highest status, much deserved, uh, and is also uh, a communicator uh, and uh, somebody who inspires both philosophical and historical knowledge in the people who read her. So I, I think that um, one should always remember her contribution. All I can say, however, in conclusion, is that you know, if it's not only am I sad that the public interest has uh, ceased to be here, I'm even sadder that it's impossible that it should ever begin in my country. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Scruton, and uh, thank you, Jim Caesar, Bill Crystal, and Adam Wolfson for launching us so well on our deliberations about the uh, contributions of the public interests. Uh, from here and through tomorrow, we're going to be focused on substantive policy areas uh, where important contributions uh, were made by authors writing in the public uh, interests. And to launch us on that, I'm delighted that we have my colleague, Professor, uh, Professor Kenneth Kirsch, to talk about neoconservatism and the courts uh, in uh, my field and Professor Kirsch's when we think of the year uh, 1965, the founding of the public interest is the second thing we think about. The first thing we think about when we hear 1965 is the case of Griswold versus Connecticut. We're at the height of the Warren Court era, and that decision makes very clear uh, that the uh, liberal jurists who are now firmly in control of the uh, Supreme Court uh, were bound and determined to revive the jurisprudence of the so-called Lochner era of 1905 to 1937 when a conservative-dominated court uh, decided that it would take upon itself in the name of unwritten constitutional uh, provisions the task of designing social policy and overturning legislation that uh, would uh, be in the way of uh, that particular agenda. So uh, it uh, was clear that now judges would do uh, in the cause of liberal social mores uh, what an earlier generation conservatives had done uh, in the cause of a conservative view of uh, economics and uh, uh, political economy. Uh, professor Kirsch is an assistant professor of politics uh, here at Princeton. Uh, he is a, a former fellow of the James Madison program and is a member of our executive uh, committee. Uh, his book published last year, Constructing Civil Liberties, Discontinuities in the Development of American Constitutional Law, is just something that anybody who's interested in American civil liberties law, uh, law, uh, history and law must uh, read. It's an absolutely outstanding uh, book. Uh, buy it in hardcover. Uh, <laughs> Professor uh, Kirsch uh, has been awarded both the Edward S. Corwin Prize, the prize for the uh, best thesis in public law in uh, all of American political science by the American Political Science Association, and the J. David Greenstone Prize from the American Political Science Association's History, uh, Politics and History uh, section. Professor uh, Kirsch. Uh, has a PhD from Cornell University and earned his law degree at Northwestern. Ken? I think I'm going to repay that uh, generous introduction by not even mentioning uh, Griswold uh, <laughs> in Connecticut, uh, which doesn't come up much, I think, in at least uh, what I uh, uh, read in the public interest at that time. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, uh, and it's, it's a real honor to be uh, in such uh, company uh, today. Um, my topic is neoconservatism and the courts, uh, and I want to uh, warn you that I'm one of these people uh, who is skeptical that today uh, neoconservatism uh, any longer exists as a distinctive outlook uh, separate from what we would generally call uh, conservatism. Um, 
But once upon a time, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it did, uh, and it existed uh, as a general political uh, sensibility, uh, and it, it provided a distinctive and highly illuminating window on the workings of American constitutionalism and the American judiciary. Uh, so how, I, how might we uh, begin uh, to appreciate that sensibility? Well, rule number one uh, in appreciating the neoconservative sensibility is don't ask the liberals, right? Uh, because liberals have no idea what neoconservatism is or was, uh, especially today, right? There have been a proliferation of really bad books uh, on the meaning of neoconservatism uh, sensational news accounts of, of, of what neoconservatism means. Uh, this is primarily uh, focused on matters of foreign policy, and maybe Bill is like the, uh, <laughs> got the bullseye on him here. Uh, um, uh, and um, there, is a, there is a sort of um, a fever about neoconservatism uh, that associates it with contemporary foreign policy, uh, an almost paranoid style, to borrow from uh, Richard Hofstadter, uh, involving uh, neoconservatism or, or saying that neoconservatism is essentially um, a personality cult surrounding uh, the political philosopher Leo Strauss uh, and a small a, a conspiracy amongst a small band of subscribers to this particular cult. Uh, the liberal stereotype today of neoconservatisms, uh, neoconservatives is that they're arrogant, they're moral absolutists, um, uh, they have an inability to listen to diverse points of view, they're impervious to scientific and social scientific evidence. They're obsessed with principled abstractions as opposed to real world facts. Uh, and they have a, an insouciance about matters of competence in government. Uh, I think if you were to pick up a reasonably educated person on the street, uh, um, that, 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 uh, that has been pinned on uh, uh, neoconservatives. Rule number two, uh, and maybe this will be a bit more controversial, is uh, don't ask conservatives. Um, I think conservatives today uh, also uh, talk a bit, uh, quite a bit, uh, about Leo Strauss in ways they did not in the heyday of neoconservatism, which is the subject of my talk, uh, which I would define as 1965 to 1980. Um, I, I, I don't deny that um, Strauss was, a, was an influence on neoconservative thought, uh, but it became a much larger influence later at the time when you could no longer, um, at a time at which it played a role in joining neoconservatism to what today we just call uh, general uh, conservatism. Um, so the conservative obsessions, I think, that obscure uh, what, it, what, it, what neoconservatism meant in this period uh, is a focus on questions of faith and fidelity to the original constitutional meaning, uh, a tireless focus uh, on the wisdom of the founders, uh, a preoccupation with the counter-majoritarian difficulty, uh, that is the idea uh, that policy is being made by elite, uh, out-of-touch uh, uh, judges, uh, and a sort of populism um, that says uh, the vision of the common people is a lot more like the vision of the founders uh, uh, than the views of the liberal uh, judiciary. So where would we go if we're not going to listen to conservatives, we're not going to listen to liberals, uh, where would we go to understand uh, the Constitution and the courts? Uh, well, I suggest we go to the horse's mouth, uh, which are the prime neoconservative journals um, uh, of this era, which are, there are two, right? Uh, there's commentary, uh, which we are not talking about today, uh, and there's uh, the public interest. Um, uh, many of the people involved in founding the public interest were involved with commentary uh, in an earlier period, so it's, it's, it's worth looking at that. 
Um, so who were the neoconservatives writing about the courts and the Constitution uh, in this period? Um, well, with one exception, and the exception's been mentioned, uh, there are actually a couple of exceptions, but the, the big exception is Martin Diamond, um, and the other exception, I guess, is Walter Burns, uh, who also contributed um, um, uh, to the public interest in this era. Uh, the, the people writing about courts in this journal in this time period were, for the most part, not political philosophers. Uh, they were not students of Leo Strauss. Uh, they were public policy wonks. They were sociologists. Uh, they were political scientists. Uh, and uh, they were not constitutional theorists. Um, uh, they were social scientific uh, empiricists. And were you to peruse the titles of the articles on courts and the judiciary in this period, uh, as I did, uh, among them you would find things like the photocopying revolution and the copyright crisis, right? <laughs> the uses and abuses of legal assistance, school desegregation and the <clears throat> limits of legalism, the right to treatment, can courts rehabilitate and cure? Crime and punishment and social science. Social science and the courts and the graying of civil rights law. So very hardcore uh, social science uh, policy studies. Uh, and the characteristics of these articles on these topics are um, humility, skepticism, obsessive engagement with social scientific and scientific evidence, right? Very little involvement with conservative ideas, but a full engagement with liberal ideas, right? A real concern with practicality and a suspicion with abstraction, a focus on real world effects, an obsession with government competence and institutional competence, uh, and for the most part, not much uh, about uh, the founders, again, with the exception of Martin Diamond and, in some cases, uh, uh, Walter Burns. There's very little about fidelity, uh, our need to be faithful uh, uh, to the founders. Uh, in fact, uh, the one thing I did found, find, uh, Martin Diamond's article, the one that was mentioned earlier, um, uh, talks about original meaning and original intent, uh, and Martin Diamond says, concluded that basically liberals and conservatives agree on the original meaning of the Constitution. Uh, uh, and we need to talk about, uh, you know, he, he, was, he was explicating something, but that, that was his conclusion at the time. Uh, there are certainly very few appeals, uh, what we'd call populist appeals, to the wisdom of the common people uh, as opposed to the judges. Um, uh, the, wis the, the opinions of the common people were important because they were sociological facts. Uh, this is the comment that goes to the comment about human nature, right? You cannot really say anything uh, about uh, how to conduct a, a effective public policy unless you knew the way or had a realistic sense of how people would react uh, to what you were uh, doing. It was a, these articles are a, a model of sensible thinking on the subject. They're remarkably free of stentorian high-mindedness, of bloviation, and of cant, uh, be it of the left uh, or of uh, uh, the right. Uh, another thing that Martin Diamond said uh, in this article is that truth is likely to lie somewhere in the middle between liberalism and conservatism. This is the Straussian. Um, uh, and he also said, fortunately, not everyone is either a liberal or conservative, right? If he says, if either the liberal or conservative vision of the Constitution trampled the other, quote, the Constitution would perish. So this is not the opinion of a partisan. Uh, and, and again, this is, this is one of the, uh, the uh, Straussian articles. So who were the neoconservatives? Uh, well, they were urban, eastern, commonly New York Jewish liberals, 
uh, social scientists confronting developments in the modern liberal welfare state, uh, which they had initially supported, uh, but working their way towards positions um, that would ally them, at least in some policy areas, with conservatives and the growing conservative movement. They were not reactionaries. They accepted the New Deal. They accepted the modern administrative state as a necessary adjustment uh, to the modern world, but they were increasingly disillusioned, sometimes participants, in the Great Society uh, program. Um, um, what they recognized, what made them distinctive, uh, was uh, that they recognized that the new American state accorded a privileged position to intellectuals in the formation of public policy, and that intellectuals are types with identifiable blind spots, obsessions, and yes, uh, ideology. So they focused intently on the mind of modern liberals. Uh, they had a profound appreciation for the complexity of public policy. Uh, as they saw it, all policy was part of a sprawling, broad-ranging, multiple, multiple institution, institutional system, uh, and interventions at any one point for any one purpose were likely to be overly ambitious. Um, stemming from overwrought moralism, romanticism, and single issues, single institution uh, focuses. Right? Uh, public policy action often had unintended consequences. Um, it often met incommensurable goals. Uh, and in, in the realm of law, you had to be concerned about lawyers and judges trying to resolve uh, and set policy in such complex areas uh, that these incommensurable goals were more effectively meant, uh, met uh, by uh, administrators uh, acting uh, sensibly and able to, and politicians who were able to make the necessary compromises and adjustments to make a policy work uh, uh, practically. So that's a general view of this. Let me say, let me now move uh, uh, to um, some examples about the neoconservative thinking on the courts and law, and then I want to conclude. Um, with some views about the influence uh, of these views. So um, one of the landmark articles uh, in this is uh, Nathan Glazer's Towards an Imperial Judiciary. Uh, and Nathan Glazer wrote many of the most influential articles from the public interest on the courts and law. Uh, this is notable. Uh, uh, <laughs> he arrives. Uh, uh, what, is, what is notable about this uh, is that uh, Nathan Glazer is not a law professor, uh, not a political scientist. He's a sociologist and definitely an empirical social scientist. So uh, uh, this, is, this is not part of the, nest, the club, and I think that actually yields, uh, if you're willing to step back and not be part of that fraternity, this yields amazing um, uh, insights. Uh, uh, this famous article begins with the following language. A non-lawyer who considers the remarkable role of courts in the interpretation of the Constitution and the laws in the United States finds himself in a never-never land, one in which the questions he never dreamed of raising are discussed at incredible length, while questions that would appear to be the first to come to mind are hardly ever raised. This is particularly the case when the concern of the non-professional observer is with social policy rather than with constitutional law as such. So, uh, in a way, it's a man from Mars perspective, right? Law is policy. Why don't we look on it as if this is true? Uh, and he goes on in this article to describe the distinctive way that lawyers look at these legal questions coming before the court, which is to see a trajectory of development, 
right? So for example, if you have a ruling on equal protection, you will have the first articulation of the principle and then just gradually tracing it up, step, tracing that principle out step by step in some natural um, uh, progression. Uh, and there is nothing political about this uh, at all. It's just the natural unfolding uh, of uh, the meaning uh, of the law. So lawyers and judges don't understand uh, law. Um, uh, uh, political scientists don't understand it either uh, because what they see uh, is essentially, uh, Glazer argues, uh, a cycle, right? There are periods of judicial activism and there are periods of judicial restraint and the court is simply following the logic of public opinion rather than uh, tracing out uh, the law. Uh, what Glazer does in this article is said, no, there's, there's another perspective uh, that what's going on now in the Warren Court, right, is not part of a cycle, but part of a sea change in American law. In other words, in the 1960s, in the Warren Court, we are witnessing a fundamental transformation uh, of the way courts uh, are dealing with law, uh, and this transformation is deeper uh, than any in American uh, history. What Glazer described in the article, it was not a, in a criticism of judicial review as such, uh, what he was doing was describing the birth of modern public interest and uh, law litigation and of the legalized American polity, right? Uh, and Glazer also noted that this seems to be rolling on despite uh, the fact that the Republicans, uh, uh, this was in the 70s, right? So we're getting the Burger Court, right? Despite the fact that the Republican appointees <coughs> were on the court, it was going on uh, uh, regardless. Uh, and the article was essentially a critique of the pathologies of the legalization of American politics, right? Uh, the idea that parties to a particular case are incidental. In other words, when a public interest law firm sues, it finds a plaintiff. It has a policy objective it wants to achieve. It finds the plaintiff. Uh, it finds the defendant. And it uses the court to make a policy. Uh, it's not as if someone was actually directly injured and then uh, uh, went ahead uh, and called for a lawyer, right? Uh, the lawyer finds the plaintiff rather than the plaintiff finding the lawyer, right? Complex issues, Glazer notes, are transposed into questions of rights. That is, dichotomous decisions by judges. You either have the right or you don't. Someone wins and someone loses. That is a feature of legalization, right? Rights determinations in courts don't value practicality but principle. You either have a fundamental right or you don't. That's the position uh, the judge uh, is in to decide. Um, and uh, he observed that judges in this time period were issuing directives to achieve goals that no one in government had any idea how to achieve. So desegregation was a classic example, right? Uh, even if you believed it was good, it was not at all clear how you would effectuate that particular policy. Uh, if you order uh, a busing or something and people move out to the suburbs, right, uh, you're con continually confounded. The courts would say things like, uh, speaking of bloviations, right, the court would say things like, every child has a right to be well-educated, right? Every prisoner has a right to be rehabilitated. Every mentally ill patient has a right to effective treatment. And then the court would subsequently micromanage the agency to try to achieve uh, these objectives, right? What advice did they get in doing this? They got advice from expert witnesses that were chosen by the advocacy groups that had sued in the first place, right? Uh, in fact, 
they often, uh, uh, their defendants in these suits were often uh, colluding with the plaintiffs, right? So the defendant, let's say a school district, would love to be sued, right, for not educating kids in some cases because that meant they could get their budget increased by the judge. The legislature would have to appropriate extra money to them, uh, and these lawsuits were being used as a means uh, to gin up uh, budgets by people within policy process. Um, often these experts were outside university experts. Uh, the courts did not hear the full realm of social scientific evidence. Um, and importantly, and this was a very uh, 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 telling point, um, whenever a judge decided one of these cases, he did it only along a single dimension. So for example, if there was a huge verdict uh, insisting upon greater um, uh, budgets for mental hospitals because of the situation in a particular mental hospital, right? Um, there is no recognition. For the court, the question is, do these patients have a right to be in a good mental hospital or don't they, right? The judge awards says they have a right and it will take $50 million, right, to bring this mental hospital up to standards. Glazer asked this question, which again, this is a classic example of something that would be obvious to a public policy analyst, but which would never occur to a judge, right? If you're spending $50 million more on a mental hospital, what is that going to do to the budget in the schools and the prisons, right? Uh, in other words, the judge was only looking with blinders at that single institution and only considering what, what the budget of that one institution. He was not looking at the full realm of public policy. Uh, and someone like Glazer was able to see this, but a lawyer or a judge preoccupied with rights uh, was not able to see this. And this turned out uh, to be immensely important. Uh, the other, another interesting and the final interesting thing um, uh, he noted in this article uh, is that these constant assessments by judges of whether or not administrators were living up to standards undermined the authority, the moral authority uh, of administrators and service providers. So it played a part uh, in the general decline of authority uh, in the society. Um, he observed that the social scientific evidence in addition uh, used in these cases was often faddish. Uh, a good example and one that was discussed much in the, in the public interest was the deinstitutionalization of the mentally ill. Right? This was the fad uh, in social science research amongst liberal social scientists that uh, 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 the mentally ill had to been taken out of the large mental hospitals. Of course, uh, they ended up on the streets uh, and uh, this is in many respects the origins of the homelessness crisis uh, that occurred uh, in the aftermath uh, of this. Um, uh, the cases were brought uh, that reflected uh, the political needs and goals of liberal legal elites rather than that of their clients. Uh, and the social science uh, uh, of the, before the courts uh, reflected uh, the views of particular liberal elites. Uh, and Glazer also noted, and others have noted, that liberal social scientists had a systematic bias towards discounting the importance of social norms and values. Right? Uh, they, did, they did not consider that. It was a blind spot. Um, now, I want to cite... Uh, uh, just quickly, uh, two other examples uh, from articles that were probably more obscure. Martin Myers on the Ford Foundation Neighborhood Law Offices. Uh, this, this article was interesting and illustrative uh, because it involved uh, lawsuits um, uh, brought by a public interest law firm um, uh, against landlords, uh, uh, poor. Uh, and um, Meyer was commenting on the bragging that was going on by these local public interest lawyers that it required every landlord in the city to hire a lawyer, right? 
Uh, and so we've really got the bastards here. Um, uh, Meyer comes along in the public interest uh, and says, guess what? If, if they have to pay for those lawyers, right, uh, uh, that means that the poor are going to have to pay more uh, in rent, right? And, and there were going to be other consequences, or some people might not even get into landlord business uh, at all, right? Same thing with evictions. There developed an elaborate um, restrictions on when a landlord could evict somebody. Um, this ended up uh, because the person had a right to a house, right? Sounds good. But in the public interest, uh, the writers, including Meyer, pointed out uh, that uh, if you essentially tie the hands of landlords in evicting tenants, make it almost impossible, you're going to end up with drug dealers uh, and other very undesirable clients living in public housing, and the landlord will have no way to get rid of them. Uh, and this will lead to all sorts of problems of crime uh, in public housing that were not anticipated. This turned out, of course, uh, 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 to be true. Um, and the general critique uh, of this was that all of these uh, lawyers were more interested in establishing some general principle than in actually making um, uh, the appropriate uh, adjustments to public policy that would help the poor uh, who they uh, cared about. Uh, the final example I will give uh, is um, Harry Brill's article on the Legal Assistance Foundation class actions in San Francisco. Right? Uh, and one distinctive thing he does here is say that there are reasons. People say class actions on behalf of the poor. What could be wrong with that? Right? Uh, it's, 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 it's wonderful that uh, lawyers are willing to serve the poor. Uh, he says, well, we can explain these decisions bureaucratically to bring these class actions. Right? It meets, uh, they, they meet the expectations of four different audiences, their client organization, the establishment, their professional colleagues, and the liberal middle class public. In other words, they are great ways for lawyers to get attention. They are a great way for lawyers to increase the budget of their organizations. Right? And they are great ways to set sort of national principles. Uh, but ultimately, Brill concluded uh, that these sort of actions did not uh, make uh, the people who are actually uh, getting the assistance in these areas uh, better off. Uh, it was mainly, uh, uh, well, he says, uh, these programs victimized uh, the poor. So I think um, uh, uh, this stuff is terrific. I mean, I think this stuff is as telling today uh, as it was then. It's brilliant, really. Uh, it makes amazing uh, reading. Um, but uh, I will say uh, that I think neoconservatism of this type that I've given illustrations of uh, no longer exists today, right? Uh, so I'm going to be provocative here and bite the hand that feeds me uh, uh, by saying some controversial things, but uh, it's an academic conference, right? So I get to say controversial. And I teach here, so I feel more comfortable. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, well, uh, what happened to neoconservatism? Now, I'm not saying that this all disappeared, but I, I am saying that it merged with a broader conservative movement in a lot of ways, um, but in distinctive ways. Uh, well, um, one thing I think that happened is that neoconservatism was heavily analytic and social scientific, uh, and I think it went populist, uh, in line with broader trends in conservative thought. Uh, in other words, uh, this critique of judges as elitists uh, and these lawyers as serving uh, a particular interests within uh, the government and their own self-interest rather than the interests of those who were purporting to help uh, went populist. Uh, in the sense that it, it devolved into denunciations of cabals of liberal elites uh, on the bench. Uh, that made it more successful politically, 
uh, but I think it no longer had this neoconservative sensibility once it went populist. Uh, second of all, uh, and maybe this will be the most controversial, uh, neoconservative thought went philosophical, right? Uh, I think it was Straussianized, right? Um, the initial critique of liberal social science uh, was by positive empi uh, positivist empiricists who were highly sympathetic with social science. They were practitioners of social science, uh, and they criticized the unwarranted and hidden assumptions of social science. Uh, they, they, they engaged in the social science in, in the spirit, progressive spirited uh, empiricism, uh, shorn of excesses of romanticism and utopianism uh, and unwarranted liberal uh, assumptions. Uh, but I think once uh, Strauss became a loomed larger uh, in neoconservative thought, um, um, ultimately they pushed this critique of, of, of social science to a general critique um, um, uh, of, of the limits of social science, uh, which ultimately ended up in foundationalism, uh, uh, dis philosophical discourses on the nature of the good, natural rights, uh, nature's law, right, timeless truths, fundamental principles. Uh, now, I don't deny that this was important as a foundation for all of neoconservatism from the beginning, but what I would say is that this became central, right, this was discussed over and over again, and often in substitute for these other uh, types of analyses. That there are fun social, social, scientific, social science is fundamentally uh, problematic, and here's why from a very deep uh, uh, perspective. In courts and law, this manifested itself in a focus on the founders and timeless truths, uh, which was not evident in any of the articles that I uh, really described, uh, and ended up with a preoccupation uh, with originalism, that's the official conservative uh, outlook on law and courts today, uh, any preoccupation with matters of fidelity to the original meaning of the founders. So um, I think the denouement of this was a simultaneous, in a simultaneous move to populism, foundationalist philosophy, um, neoconservatism merged with modern conservatism, uh, and it disappeared. Okay, so I will conclude uh, with making uh, a quick observation on how influential neoconservative approaches to the court uh, have been. Uh, maybe this will also be controversial. Uh, uh, I don't think that it's been that influential uh, at all, uh, at least as a distinct uh, way of thinking about the courts distinct from conservatism. Okay? Um, I think neoconservatives of this era knew a lot about the sociology of knowledge in the academy, and I think they would not be surprised uh, by this. Um, today, the serious study of the Constitution and the courts is parceled out amongst different disciplines. Uh, those disciplines are academic disciplines. They emphasize narrowness, technical refinement, rather than the sort of broad-minded analysis of educated generalists of the sort that took place in the public interest. First, you have law professors. What effect did neoconservatives have on them? Uh, well, law professors continually talk about judicial review and democratic theory. How are these unelected life-tenure judge, life judges, um, uh, uh, what gives them the right to strike down laws passed by the people democratically? That is the central preoccupation of law professors. This is a topic that was almost never discussed uh, in the public interest uh, during the heyday years of neoconservatism. It was not even discussed in any detail in Nathan Glazer's critique of the imperial judiciary which discussed access to courts, uh, standing, social science, uh, and um, issues of uh, legal remedies. 
Uh, then you have the political scientists who are also hopelessly narrow and one-dimensional, uh, and the questions they ask are, do judges make decisions based on law and politics, law or politics? Um, increasingly techn technological refinements are made. Uh, people do mathematical models to sort of show whether law or politics predominates in a judicial decision. Uh, this is the debate that I think would strike most neoconservatives as both silly uh, and beside the point. Uh, so they did not influence political science. Um, uh, where political scientists have taken up neoconservative themes, and in recent years they have, right, the idea that we need to look at the impact of judicial decisions rather than not just the pronouncement, uh, that the path from pronouncement of a ruling to policy is complicated, um, that often other branches in government are complicit, uh, in giving more power to the courts, um, that the judici judiciary does not operate in isolation. Uh, when political scientists have taken up these, what I would call neoconservative topics in recent years, uh, they have been heralded as stunning new insights uh, into the law. Um, this is not a case uh, of neoconservatives influencing these contemporary political scientists. It is the case of them arriving at the very same views that Nathan positions Nathan Glazer arrived at, the liberal social scientist in the academy today, 30 to 40 years after uh, Glazer uh, had said it uh, first. Uh, so um, I'm not sure that they were influenced in that regard. And the last, amongst conservatives, um, conservatism has, has sort of uh, centered the wagons around originalism uh, and uh, fidelity, uh, uh, and neoconservatives were concerned uh, with issues of good public policy. They may have had some in impact uh, in people being more skepticism of judges in the move toward judicial restraint, which is also uh, uh, part and parcel of contemporary conservatism, uh, but it's oblique. Um, so I will end on a good note uh, by saying there's a silver lining. The silver lining uh, is that I think they would have expected uh, uh, this uh, very much uh, on the ground of real world impact and critique. Um, I think in the real world, uh, the trend towards increasing legalization of politics, uh, they had no influence here either. I think that continues as much now uh, as it ever has, right? Their law and lawsuits and legalization of all sorts of issues has continued to grow uh, uh, as part of our society. Uh, and uh, I would think that they would understand that diagnosing the illness um, and worrying about its likely effects, as Nathan Glazer and these others did, um, is not the same thing uh, as curing it. Um, so, as far as the diagnosis is concerned, uh, and I'll end um, uh, by quoting uh, a theme from the Bond epic of the, the liberal conservative heyday, uh, rather than the Bond epic uh, of our own uh, day here. Uh, as far as the diagnosis of the illness is concerned, uh, if not uh, uh, effectively proposing a cure, uh, I would say nobody does it better uh, makes me feel sad for the rest. Nobody does it half as good as you. Baby, you're the best. <laughs> <laughs>
My students seem younger and I'm far less willing to give them up, so I consider them students even if they're out a few years, or even any high school students who are here. Uh, the, the, the floor is yours for the first uh, a few minutes. Uh, and uh, Zach uh, Ruckman has the, uh, the microphone over here. We need to have all, anybody who asks a question get hold of the microphone so that the question can be heard for our uh, uh, recording uh, up, up there. What's that? The, he'll bring it around so after I recognize people for questions. So uh, any, uh, any students want to uh, uh, launch us here? I see you out there. You're being very quiet. Is this ancient history to you guys? Ended in 2005? No, okay. Well, you're still eligible. Through the whole question session, you're still uh, eligible. Uh, Steve? Uh, you know, you need the mic. Yeah, I guess I, I want to do question maybe something of the direction that this is going already. I mean, I think in a way Adam was, was hinting at this, that there's a, a couple of stories that you can tell about the public interest. One is a conservative story in which everything that, that uh, in the beginning is continuous with where conservatism ended up, right? So, uh, so this is really a story of how conservatives learned and their, their sort of particular journey. Um, but I don't know that that's the, um, the story that's most um, faithful, maybe certainly to the first 10 years or even the 15 years of the public interest, right? There's a lot of different destinations that that initial insight uh, went in, right? One, uh, you could argue, is modern policy schools. When you read, when I've been doing some research on the, the, inter the early debates around modern policy schools, and even people like Graham Allison, when he's describing what the reason why, why they need the Kennedy School, right? He's, up, he's making many insights that we did all kinds of, you know, basically building a modern welfare state in the great society, and we didn't really know what we were doing, and we didn't have the analytical capacity, right? Um, that seems to me wholly consistent with the initial insight of the public interest, but is also not continuous with modern um, conservatism. Uh, I think there's also an the entire part of um, that, neo that initial public interest insight with people who, uh, I mean, I think, I, hate, I don't want this to be misunderstood, but slightly smugly, uh, Bill Crystal has suggested that there are people who, who weren't willing to press charges, but I mean, that would, that would apply to both myself, and I think Bill, um, Bill Galston uh, would be the, uh, the, the ones not willing to press charges, but who were also people who published in the, in the public interest, people who thought this, in, this insight was intended and, and could still be a corrective to liberalism rather than eventually an alternative. So I guess one question I had is, um, do we really want to tell a story of this that, that's just a story about uh, conservatism? And also, um, in what sense might these other traditions that come out of the public interest be uh, themselves a criticism of modern conservatism? And, when, and how might you actually build a, a criticism of modern conservatism out of these other trajectories of the early public interest? Steve, just to clarify, when you say other traditions, plural, what do you have in mind besides neoliberalism? Well, I mean, again, I think the one is there's a, uh, a still a wholly um, anti-ideological insight that I think in some sense part of that insight of modern policy schools, and you see this partially because some people who were involved in the word neoconservatives like Aaron Woldovsky at Berkeley, is an attempt to say, simply say that the, the role of intellectuals should be outside of that partisan conflict, right? And partially this is about building up a modern state, a modern bureaucracy that's supposed to simply evaluate what, um, what good, projects... Good government pragmatism. 
Yeah, so that, I think there's also a kind of, a kind of neoliberalism or DLC no, that or Clintonianism. I that I understood. That part um, I understood. I wondered if there was more than one. In the uh, I know, well, I think there's also, the, I mean, a Dan, I mean the, the person who only, you know, dimly put, referred to here is uh, Daniel Bell, who I think um, has a, a more comprehensive cultural criticism of, um, of capitalism that I think also uh, is to some degree in, in, inconsistent with modern, uh, with modern conservatism. Good. Again, he's half of the original founder. So. True enough. Uh, Bill, do you want to start on that one? It's good to be here at a university so I can hear about what stories we want to tell and all those <laughs> postmodern formulations. Um, I wasn't telling a story. I was just commenting on Jim's talk. Uh, obviously, there are many people of divergent views who vote for the public interest, and the public interest was part of many different intellectual movements and launched various ones. I don't actually agree on that. I, mean, I taught at the Kennedy School. I would say that the spirit of most public, luckily the public interest spirit of skepticism and serious empirical research and doubt that good intentions is enough to make good policy entered some of the public policy schools. But it's not, I don't believe, empirically true that it was important at the founding of the Kennedy School. And Graham may say so afterwards. And it's nice that people who contributed to the public interest teach at the Kennedy School, like Dick Zackhauser and others. Um, but uh, I don't quite agree with that, but no, I don't, I'm not trying to coral it all into one story. And, you know, there are people who vote for the public interest who were mugged by reality and didn't press charges, and it's a free country. And <laughs> if, if the shoe fits, Steve, you know, I mean, <laughs> I'm glad that wounded you a little bit. <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I, the, the point I will concede, and this relates to Ken's point too, I concede, I mean, I just would, would say, I mean, look, there are many different traditions, and it is probably true that the, um, I mean, Jim and I might have understated, I suppose, the sort of hard-headed, empirical, pragmatic side of the early, which was true throughout the public interest, and I think incidentally is true of much of current conservative and neoconservative thought. Um, you know, one can say it's not by saying, well, that's not, you know, I mean, I think Ken sort of has now defined somehow neoconservatism in, in such a way and defined what's happening today in such a way as to sort of separate the two a little artificially. But um, I, I agree that the pragmatic, empirical, sort of hard-headed, non-ideological uh, approach is extremely important and has had lots of influence in lots of social science professions and disciplines and in government and, and in public policy schools. And I don't think I focused on that particular. Jim didn't focus on it, and I didn't in my comments uh, on him. I'm not trying to deny that that's important. It might be the case, however, that I also think I'd say this about Ken's point, which I think is related to yours, really, the, the populism and foundationalism, if you wish, that maybe came to characterize neoconservatism or conservatism a lot more in the last 20 years can be viewed as an unfortunate departure from the origins or as a deepening of the origins, obviously. And the question is ultimately how much, how far could one go with the sort of hard-headed uh, skepticism that claimed to be unconcerned with these, uh, either with uh, questions of foundational questions of the regime or a more serious thought about opinion as the realm of politics, which is not something that public policy schools still pay much attention to. Jim, do you want to crack at that one? No? Uh, Adam or anyone? Uh, yeah, just, well, just, just briefly. Uh, I think, uh, I th I think well, in, re in response, I think both to, to Ken's uh, brilliant talk and also Steve's question, I, I think uh, it, it's useful to keep in mind some important distinctions, not, not only right, the question of, well, is this is the story of the public interest the story of conservatism in some way? I, I think I would say it's not even clear to me it's the story of neoconservatism in the sense that the, the, 
what we think of as neoconservatism, and I, God knows what, what it is exactly, uh, right? But, but it's, a, it's a distinct phenomenon from the public interest itself, and I was sort of trying to indicate that in my own remarks. Uh, it's, a, it's a distinctive, I, I think the, the neocon sentiment uh, or persuasion, as, as Irving would call it, was not necessarily the persuasion of the public interest, although obviously the overlap was, was tremendous. So I think I'd, I'd want to make that one comment, uh, just to further muddy the waters. And I think the other comment I just wanted to make in, in regard to uh, some of, of Ken's comments about, uh, right, sort of the, the, I mean, almost sort of the move away from social science and, and so on and so forth and kind of more of a philosophic approach at the public interest. Again, possibly in the case of neoconservatism, and, and here I, I think I would want to hear from, from Bill and his thoughts on that, although I'm not sure. In the case of the public interest, I, I tend to think not, and I was there in, in the last uh, 11 years of the magazine. I don't really think uh, that there was a shift away, certainly not on the part of the editors. I, I would comment on this, that I think, I think the, the availability, the supply, of really tremendous social scientists like James Q. Wilson or Daniel Patrick Moynihan or Dan Bell or, or, or Nathan Glazer, who's here, uh, I think the, that type of writer, I think, became, I, I think they sort of disappeared. And, and here you, right, as a, as a grad student and a professor here at Princeton would, would know, know about that, the reason that happened much better than I do. So I think, I think like the, Social scientists like, like Jim Wilson, who did that kind of work, who wrote from us from the very beginning to the very end, I think they didn't, they didn't have, right, there, there weren't a lot of junior Jim Wilsons around. You, you accepted, right? We, we published you. Uh, so, so I think that happened. I think also so the, the, that kind of social science, as it was taught in the, in the schools early in the magazine, early on in the magazine's existence, we could no longer draw upon, uh, upon that. And then I also think, for whatever reason, uh, I think even those that did that kind of work or, or, or who might have been inclined to, uh, were, and here I'm speaking as an editor, were perhaps less interested in publishing in the public interest than they might have been uh, 25 or 30 years ago. And that, again, has something to do with, I think, trends in the academy and what it meant uh, to, public, to publish in the public interest uh, in 1970 rather than 1995. Ken, did, did you want to offer a comment? No? Nothing on that? Well, I, I just thought those were, those were very... Go, can, get, take the mic. Yeah. Uh, I don't really have much to add to that. I mean, I thought those were very... Uh, very interesting answers, uh, and I think that uh, uh, what Adam said is is, is certainly uh, uh, true. Uh, there have been trends in the academy, um, uh, uh, both politically. Uh, in other words, um, uh, you don't want to be writing for conservative uh, journals that are being perceived as conservative uh, in the academy. But I also th I think much more of it is methodological uh, and professional that there have become an increasing list of. Uh, journals that you're supposed to publish in, and they are highly social scientific, uh, and uh, uh, publishing in um, uh, more popular venues to become sort of a public intellectual is, is, is looked down upon. Uh, uh, so um, uh, I think that um, uh, I think that's a real loss, actually, uh, to the to to the country, really, uh, that uh, political science can share some of the uh, 
uh, a blame for. You, sir. I still, this is a question about neoconservatives, and Professor Kirsch kind of started with uh, Leo Strauss, the philosophical aspect of it. Now, first of all, to, if you look, if you read a lot of the publications today, there's always this linkage to Leo Strauss, obviously. Now, to me, I, I read a lot about Leo Strauss, and to me, Leo Strauss was a student of Judaism first. He was a great student of Maimonides, the Guide for the Perplexed, and especially his most important book probably is the Law and Philosophy that he wrote, okay, in which he emphasizes Maimonides' view of rationality, okay, to be rational, faith and, and, and reason together. Now, if, if you take this approach, obviously, but and there, so, so, so to me, that's what really Leo Strauss was a student of Maimonides, but I never, I never understood him otherwise. So I don't understand the linkage with uh, neoconservatives, obviously. But on the other hand, uh, you cannot disassociate foreign policy from social policy because the consequences of foreign policy also affect social policy. And if you read the press today and you read a lot of journals today, you associate uh, neoconservatives with the war, war in Iraq. And uh, I think Mr. Crystal, I saw him on television and he is a supporter of that. So if you look at Maimonides, obviously, and Leo Strauss, who's a student of Maimonides, being rational. So the first thing, obviously, if, if, if you spend money on, on a war, you don't have enough money on, on social policy, you know, on social issues. The other issue is also uh, being rational means to look at costs versus benefits. And as, uh, talking about this word there, I don't have to add anything because everybody knows what's going on, what are the consequences, and what are the costs. And, and this is related, this is very much to Mr. Crystal because he, because he is very much an advocate on the foreign policy of neoconservatives. So the issue is Leo Strauss and, and the foreign policy issue. Ball's in your court, Bill. <laughs> I feel I should claim that, of course, Maimonides would have supported the war in Iraq. <laughs> and if, I, if people can claim that about Strauss, why shouldn't they claim it about Maimonides? <laughs> um, well, obviously, the public interest didn't deal with foreign policy. Uh, they made the Dan Bell and, and my father made the decision at the beginning that, at the beginning of the in '65, as the debates over Vietnam were heating up, that they didn't want to be. If there were other foreign policy journals, the national interest was started, and my father became publisher of that in '84 or something like that, to be a foreign policy journal, somewhat like uh, the public interest. And people who were associated with that journal are all over the lot now on issues of foreign policy, much as. Um, you know, many of those who are associated with public interest are at least somewhat all over the lot on issues of domestic policy as well. So, I mean, I, I, don't, uh, I don't think the foreign in terms of the public interest, I don't, foreign policy wasn't a, not only not a focus, it wasn't really part of the, uh, it was explicitly excluded from consideration. Um, Neoconservatism is a different story from the public interest, as Adam said. I do think neoconservatism was very influenced by foreign policy concerns in the 70s. A lot of the liberals the original formulation of liberalism, liberals being mugged by reality had to do with domestic policy, crime, et cetera, but part of the reality in the 70s that mugged a fair number of liberals was the reality of uh, what was you know, the U.S. retreat and, and the apparent Soviet advances and the need for uh, you know, the Democratic parties move away from the Scoop-Jackson tradition, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it is more important a part of the history of neoconservatism than 
it is a, a part of the history of the, the public interest. I mean, Strauss is a very complicated issue. I, as an empirical matter, though, let's not get a carry. I mean, I myself am a student of a student of Strauss. I don't, if you look at the, I'm looking here at the last issue of the public interest that I happen to bring, very few, I would only, yeah, very few of the contributors are either students of Strauss, none actually, I believe, was a student of Strauss, uh, or students of students of Strauss, or much affected by Strauss. It's just not, as a, the huge bulk of the public interest had little to do with that particular school of political philosophy, which has its own disagreements and tensions, such as the one you mentioned. There are some who regard Strauss's work on Judaism and Maimonides as fundamental, others who regard you know, his work on the Greeks and on ancients and moderns as fundamental, and uh, there are huge differences there too. So I, I think, uh, yeah, I agree that it's, it, I would say that, leave aside Strauss for a minute, I mean, there were many other thinkers who were important who were not social scientists, though, but I do think, you know, that the, a, a sense that one had to, that the 60s provoked, and this was true somewhat at the very beginning in 65, Marty Diamond's piece says conservatives and liberals agree on the Constitution and they're both wrong because they both underrate the founders and think that they're, you know, conservatives, liberals think they're a bunch of, you know, sort of there was the document for the master class and, and conservatives sort of agree with that and think, yeah, well, you know, thank God the, the, the conservative, you know, these conservative landowners didn't let, you know, democracy get out of hand and, and Diamond's argument, as I recall it, and, and, and you know, is that that's an insufficient understanding uh, of the founding. I do think from the beginning, in addition to all the hard-headed empirical social science, much of it informed by economics, I would say, um, um, there was a sense of, especially when the 60s really kicked in and the crisis of liberal institutions and uh, the family and all that kicked in in the late 60s, there was a sense of needing to go back to rethink some of these other issues beyond simply demonstrating, which isn't important either, the empirical consequences of some of, of you know, failed government policies or of the breakup of the family. So in that respect, I wouldn't say Strauss, but there are many other ways to go back than, to, than through Strauss and many people informed by other deep thinkers and deep philosophers and you know, wrote for the public interest uh, in addition to those whose thought was informed by Strauss. Well, well you've walked me right into the question I had for, for Ken. Uh, when the judicialization of social policy began to occur, uh, in the Warren era. Sure, the social scientists such as Dr. Glazer uh, look at the situation, they look at the mess that's made when courts take over institutions and attempt to micromanage them, whether they're prisons or educational systems or, or what have you, and they put the, the, the spotlight on the, on, the, on the bad social policy that emerges from a judicially mandated, uh, uh, a judicially mandated scheme of things. Uh, but then it's, uh, in, in, is it surprising or odd at all that in that context people would begin to ask the question, including neoconservatives, well, do we have here not only failures of social policy, bad social policy being made by institutions that were not designed to make social policy, but don't we also have a compromising of fundamental principles of Republican government? And doesn't that really matter? I mean, why should there be anything that does more than, as Bill put it, deepen the neoconservative critique of the courts when neoconservatives join other kinds of conservatives in saying, gosh, Lincoln's critique of the court in 1861 has resonance today when courts are trying to resolve big fundamental disputes of uh, social policy, whether or not they're making a mess of it, and, and, and by and large they are, they're still compromising something fundamental about principle. Is there any, is there any conflict between a concern with good policy and a concern with principle. 
Uh, and to go back to Bill's point, which was a, a similar uh, point about this, uh, that uh, perhaps uh, rather than this marking a departure from neoconservatism, uh, uh, that's been argued that it, it, it represents a deepening. Yeah. I guess that's that's uh, uh, sort of what you're saying. Look, look, my my real answer to that is I think that's a very profound question, right? Uh, I don't think there is an easy uh, uh, answer to that question. Um, uh, and uh, probably the answer is somewhere in the middle. I think that uh, um, I, I can understand it as a, a deepening um, uh, in a lot of ways uh, to go back and rethink foundations. But there does uh, come a point uh, where um, the speculation ends up, um, it's almost an invisible line, where, it, where, where um, you end up, uh, I've seen this in other journals, actually, that are other Straussian journals that are not the public interest, right? Where essentially uh, they end up um, just repeating, uh, implying that what's most important is to repeat the, the point that there are fundamental truths over and over again as a philosophical point. Uh, and then that becomes rigid enough that um, it, it can devolve into an ideology where people stop looking uh, at uh, the actual consequences of public policy and it precludes uh, certain forms of debate and precludes certain uh, uh, forms of research. Now, I'm not, uh, I, and I, I was raising the issue that that might have been the case with this in modern conservatism, and I believe that, right? Um, but uh, I don't think there's a pat answer, uh, and I would certainly not say that, no, it's not. Uh, okay. Uh, I have gotten the signal from she who must be obeyed, our events coordinator, Judy Rivkin, that we're overdue for our break. We're going to take a 10-minute break and then return for social policy and urban policy with Professors DiUlio and Mead and Ramesh Panuro. Thank you. <laughs>